Thank you, April. What a wonderful song, and certainly uh, God does give us everything as we seek Him out in our life. Reading from that first book we have in our Bible again, Genesis, one of those wonderful stories again uh, that we find there that we learned uh, many years ago. In Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1 through 4, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, and this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bihah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word uh, to him. And then on down in Genesis uh, 37, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, and I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his precious and holy word. Coming out of the pits. In December of 2020, a little four-year-old boy was walking along with his mom and dad, and he fell into this hole in a well in Garcinio, Texas. A little four-year-old fell into a 44-foot deep well, but he only fell down some nine feet. They were able to rescue him, and they called him the Christmas miracle as the, after some many hours of trying to find a way of getting out of that well. Can't you imagine uh, what his parents were thinking and what his family was thinking and to pull him out of this hole, out of this pit. Uh, what a great time of celebration and rejoicing it became for his entire family. You're talking about having a wonderful Christmas. That would be one, wouldn't it? You almost lost a child, a grandchild. Ever been in a pit? Maybe this morning as you come or as you listen to my voice, you find yourself in some form of pit. 
maybe folk can't look at you and determine that you're in that pit. Ever been stuck in that miry clay? Ever felt like that you've just been sinking deeper and deeper, you, you just can't get out? Matter of fact, you get in further each moment, each day. I'm not talking about that dirt pit by the side of the road that you could get stuck in. The pit I'm talking about is a scarier and more dangerous kind of pit. It's a pit that King David speaks about there in Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, as he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand, that kind of pit. What is a pit? More than a place, it is that state of mind, it is that attitude that we're in. Uh, It's that state of discouragement. Or maybe for you this morning, it's frustration. It's a state of despair. It's a state where you find yourself crying and saying, what can I do to get out of this? You keep circling the wagons time and time again. In this story we find a pit, or says a cistern in some translations. And that first pit that we often encounter is favoritism. Father Jacob gives to Joseph, this son of his, who he had with his favored wife, Rachel, a coat of many colors or of long sleeves, it tells us. The scriptures state uh, that it was a very special coat. It was reserved for those who sort of was royalty or those who were a notch above. Favoritism. Even the appearance of favoritism, we know what that does in the world in which we live. It strikes a deadly blow to any family. How many times have we heard that term sibling rivalry, uh, some feeling better or being treated differently than others. We find here in this story that Jacob appeared to love Joseph more than any of his other children, even his little baby Benjamin, that he loved him more. He had uh, this special relationship with Joseph, favoritism, even that appearance. We find it gives us Uh, something to think about that is very hurtful and powerful. Whether it's in uh, the family or the workplace or any organization, most every family knows uh, that experience, how it disrupts that life of the family. When one child is elevated above another by the affection or by their gifts or honor, that's a sure recipe for trouble. Even though it's the only uh, perception sometimes that we have, of what's going on, and it may not be reality, in essence, it has the same result and effect. While favoritism provides the seed for trouble, Joseph unwittingly adds fuel to the fire. When Jacob sends Joseph uh, off uh, to do well, uh, to check on his brothers who are shepherding the sheep there in Dotham, he goes and tattles on his brothers. The brothers may or not have deserved the negative report that he sent back. But earlier Joseph had bragged about having dreams. For uh, he appears to be superior to his brothers in his dream. In the first dream, the brothers um, are told about the sheaves of grain 
that got up and bowed down to his sheaf of grain. And then in the second dream, he saw the sun and the moon and even the stars, and all of them too, they bowed down to him. What was the message? Joseph's dreams are seen as a product of his own arrogance, that he's better than them in some uh, particular way. And then oftentimes in uh, our lives and in this story, we see that there is that pit of the ten brothers and their envy. It says, his brothers said to him, you are indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more. Betsy Cohen in her book, The Snow White Syndrome, retells uh, that fairy tale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And she sees envy as the hidden motive that moves that story along. The original fairy tale sees Snow White as the woman liberating herself from this evil stepmother and moving into a world of work, of relationships, where she seeks to find herself. The story of Snow White is an example of a mother's extreme reaction to being replaced and surpassed by another's beauty and good fortune. Maybe we've experienced that. Maybe others in our family have experienced that. Maybe it's at our workplace. Maybe it's somewhere else in the community, some group or board that we serve upon. Envy is the feeling of discontent and ill will because of another's advantages or possessions or their status or perceived status. It is being resentful and filled with dislike of another who is something more desirable than we ourselves. See, envy is wanting what someone else has and feeling badly about oneself for not having it. Rarely, do people tell anybody about envy? <laughs> we just don't go share that, do we? Even among our closest friends. People are taught to keep envy in the closet. Joseph's ten brothers are smitten here with envy and jealousy. They desire to have their father's love and not see his love and attention just lavished on Joseph but they want a part of that too. If envy were an illness, the world would be a hospital, said writer Schoth. You see, to be human is to compare ourselves with others, and almost everything in our life can that happen. In the workplace, our salaries, our status, our looks, our intelligence, most anything that you want to conjure up, we can compare it to something else. Envy is a sin against the ninth and Ten Commandments that we find there in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20:17 says, "You shall not covet." You see, envy appears as one of the seven deadly sins in Dante's Inferno. Of those seven deadly sins, the only one that they deem to be worse is the sin of pride. With envy, it is a curse 
we sometimes repress it and we ignore it, but the source of envy is alienation from God and from one another. That's what it does in our life. And that's the reason that God detests it. Envy comes from low self-esteem, from our fears and from our own personal insecurities. It comes from an irrational idea that we need to be loved equally by all people and gifted like all other people all the time or we're going to be unhappy. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? As long as the stepmother queen remained youthful, the mirror always answered, You, O queen, you are the fairest of them all. But the day the mirror replied, No, Snow White is the most beautiful, the queen flushed green with envy. Envy turns into hatred and murderous plans. Likewise, envy eventually leads to ten brothers to plan murder. And that leads to that last place, which when we have that jealousy and envy uh, mustering up inside of us, we hate so much that we want to commit murder. And so these brothers despise him so much, that's exactly what they wanted to do. Listen to what he says in Genesis 17, 19, and 20. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of those pits, and then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will all become now of his dreams. Reuben, and we find later on uh, another brother, uh, certainly did not want to see him killed, and the plan was after he was thrown into this pit or the cistern that they would go back and rescue him, but we know that he was sold into slavery. Oftentimes, a waterless pit spells trouble. We are in a waterless pit when we are consumed with hatred in our hearts. We feel forsaken. We are let go by a company that we've given our best years to, and they give us that pink slip on Friday of the last day of work and say, we don't need you anymore. We're abandoned by a husband or wife who leaves a note on the table and says, our marriage is over. We find sometimes this feeling of hatred in our hearts when our parents or our children, lonely and isolated, we find ourselves not being able to share that with anybody. We find it oft times in community. We can even find it in a church. We are experiencing life in a waterless pit, a little boy was taken to the dentist and the dentist discovered that he had a cavity that needed to be filled. He says, now young man, what kind of filling would you like for that tooth? The little boy sort of rolled his eyes around a little bit and says, chocolate please. Sometimes we want that kind of feeling, chocolate, in our lives, don't we? But we find ourselves in that waterless pit and we promise, hey, we'll do anything to get out of it. St. Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, 
but not destroyed there in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. So, whereas favoritism and envy and hatred and murder plans are able to tear us uh, from within, the twine that binds and builds peace is compassion and forgiveness and love. It brings us out of that pit that, that's the only spiritual answer, isn't it? In addition to the sensible reasoning and compassion of Reuben and his tender side, we find that Judah, too, the other brother, they, they wanted to save him, and they didn't want to, to have him uh, committed to death. They were his flesh and blood, and this duo understood that. Sold for 20 pieces of silver for a brother's life. Wow. Reminds us of another story in the Bible, doesn't it, of Jesus. What brings us out of that pit that we are in? I love the story of a woman and her grandmother sitting on the front porch, and they were in a rocking chair. And the woman said to her grandmother, he's just no good. He's completely untrustworthy, not to mention he's lazy. Yes, He's bad, the grandmother said, as she rocked back and forth in her chair. But Jesus loves him. I'm not sure of that, the younger woman persisted. Oh, yes, answered the elderly lady. Jesus loves him. She rocked back and forth for a few moments and reflected on the statement she had just made and said, of course, Jesus doesn't know him like we do. We could find ourselves saying the same thing this morning so often, couldn't we? That's the way that Joseph's brothers felt about him, their youngest sibling. They just found Joseph getting underneath their skin. Dreams, coat of many colors, the way that their father treated him and the way that they did not treat the other brothers. And then we find some 20 years later as they needed food and they, they went there where Joseph was, not knowing that he was there and that he was in uh, this high order of the government. Uh, they found themselves shocked as they realized he had been sold into slavery and now he had risen to this place fearing the worst then Joseph spoke one of the most profound statements that we have in all the Scriptures. Listen to this. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers first of all because he trusted in God. If we're going to forgive one another, if we're going to make reconciliation, if we're going to get out of that pit, we've got to trust in God. Jerry Levin, who was assigned Middle East Bureau Chief for CNN, was there in that war-torn country in Beirut, realizing there's a possibility at any time you could be kidnapped, but that wouldn't happen. But all of a sudden, he got a tap on the shoulder. He looked down, and in his stomach was this green uh, gun pinned against himself. 
They kidnapped him, took him to this isolated place, chained him to a radiator and left him for days in the midst of his loneliness and fear. Jared always thought that Jesus' teaching about forgiveness was incredibly tacky and wimpy and weak-kneed. But now here in this solitary cell, he began to understand that the bully with the gun is the wimp and the man who says, go ahead and shoot me is not. But in that place, like he had never prayed before, he began to pray to God and he found God in a marvelous way. And he said, God, please forgive men like this, like I'm doing now, because they are in part responsible for bringing me to you and your son. He had a renewal experience. He had a come to Jesus, literally, experience. And eventually, he was able to get out of uh, this cell that he was in, being kidnapped. Uh, But something transformed him and changed him. After all, he thought, why else would a middle-aged grandfather uh, be sitting here uh, cold in a bare room in Lebanon, chained to a wall, except God wanted to teach him something. Joseph realized that there comes a time when we must forgive and move on. I want to ask you this morning, how long have we been stuck in the same place? And how long are we going to remain in that place? with a state and a spirit of unforgiveness in our heart. It's hard to forgive someone who's wronged us, isn't it? It's hard to forgive someone who meant evil against us. It's hard to break with the past. And that's exactly, though, what Joseph did with his brothers. Maybe Joseph wanted to have revenge on them, as we often do when somebody hurts us. He had some time to think about it as he buried his thoughts and emotions, God began to melt his heart. And he was able to forgive them. Listen to these words. That he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. The power of forgiveness works both ways. Joseph forgave his brothers for what they had done but the brothers forgave Joseph for being a spoiled brat. He forgave his brothers for what they had done for him years earlier, and the family was restored. I thought this was a powerful statement by Gandhi. He said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. That fits within our Christian faith, doesn't it? That's the same discovery that Jerry Levin experienced there in Lebanon. And hopefully the same kind of discovery that we would have. An unknown author talked about some of the ingredients that we need for making reconciliation and coming out of those pits in our life. He said, on this day, mend a quarrel. Search out a forgotten friend. Dismiss a suspicion and replace it with trust. Write a letter to someone who misses you. Encourage a youth who has lost his faith. Keep a promise. Forgive an old grudge. Examine your demands on others 
and vow to reduce them. Fight for a principle. Express your gratitude. Overcome an old fear. Tell someone you love them. Tell them again, and tell them again, and tell them again. Have you ever been in that pit? Maybe you're in one this morning. Being in a pit doesn't mean that you're bad or you're sinful. It means that you're human and we all go through those times and seasons in our life. The problem isn't that we fall into it. The problem is when we do, to quote a very popular commercial from the 80s, we've fallen and we can't get out. Some of us have fallen into a pit in our life and we can't get out. There are too many people who have fallen and can't get up. That's not how God designed it for us to live. No way. God designs us to live lives of victory, not defeat. Lives of hope, not despair. That we would live upon the rock, not in the pits of life. And this morning, you have a chance to do something about that. How about you? Are you strong enough to forgive and make reconciliation? Come on, let's get out of that pit. That's God's plan. Amen and amen. May God bless you on this day. It's a wonderful story with a great ending. Only because Joseph made reconciliation with those who had hurt him and offended him. Will we do the same? Would you please stand as we have a closing word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we hold on to our hurt and our jealousy and our envy and our hatred and our bitterness, and it hurts others. But help us to see that it hurts ourselves. And most importantly, it hurts you, O oh God. We've been bought with a price. Our sins have been forgiven. And you call us, too, to forgive others who have hurt us. May we do it on this day and the days ahead. For it's in the blessed name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.